all set? Well, it's great to be here this morning, and it's a great day to be in Christ. It's the first day of a new week. And, you know, I was thinking one time, God could have constructed things so that it was just one long day. The time was constructed that way, but he didn't. Every day is a new start. Every week is a new start. Every month, every year. All kinds of opportunities to start over again. Because, you know, it doesn't always go exactly the way that we would have liked. So, um, when Pastor Nick asked me to speak, I had two questions for him. I said, what's the dress code? I have kind of an aversion to neckties. Amen. I will preach in them under, under duress, but um, so I was happy to learn that that was, wouldn't be necessary. And the, the next question was, how long do I have to speak? Um, and, and he understood why I asked that, because he has preached in Nepal, and I have preached in India. And they do things a little bit differently there. I was very surprised when they said, now we expect that you will preach for at least two hours. <laughs> now you can say something in two hours. I like that. However, I, I, I understand that that is not your practice here. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll try to color within the lines. Um, it, my goal is to tell some stories and we'll discuss some words look at some scriptures, and then we'll all go to a dinner party together. Um, in the course of my life in ministry, I wear a number of different hats. I don't know if that has contributed to the bare spot up here, but uh, as someone said, you know, they don't put marble tops on cheap furniture. You know, if you had told me a few years ago that I would be here this morning talking about recovery, I would have said, oh, no, no, you got the wrong guy, because that's never been my ministry focus. Um, and in fact, I did say that about six or seven years ago. A friend of mine said, uh, there's going to be an upcoming training, a one-day training on a Saturday uh, for people that want to help folks get out of um, addiction, drug and alcohol addiction. I said, nope, not me, wrong guy. I, I mean, that's a very important ministry, obviously, uh, but that's for AA and Teen Challenge and ministries like that. And, uh, but I went anyways. I figured I could devote a Saturday. Well, when I got there, they presented a little bit differently. They said it, it, the ministry is called Living Free. Anybody ever heard of that? Um, I hadn't either, uh, but they said, this is a, a ministry to help people with life-controlling issues. And I said, oh, you mean everybody? <laughs> okay, that, that's different, because we do have things that we, we just can't seem to get a handle on. We've got things in our past that, that, that just won't go away, and so we all need that kind of ministry. So we went through the training and there, were, there was a group that wanted to pursue it further. So we went through their material. We, we met as a small group uh, once a week for about a year. We went all the way through the material and then the next step was to take it out into churches. And when we tried to do that, guess what we met with? No, no. We don't want those kind of people in our church. The sad thing that they didn't get was they already had those kind of people in their church. <laughs> um, 
And so that's a problem, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Uh, so in 2017, the Good Samaritan Network began. And it started because the governor of New Hampshire approached the New Hampshire Alliance, which is an alliance of churches in the state, to ask if, if there was any help that the church could bring into the opioid crisis. Because, you know, our state, every state is being seriously affected by addiction. People are dying. Uh, families are being destroyed. Communities are being destroyed. And so when there's a crisis, it's got to be all hands on deck. Every available resource needs to be brought to the problem. So uh, the, the governor asked, uh, you know, is there anything that ch churches can do? Well, it's not customary for a New England governor to ask the church for anything, at least not for the last couple of centuries. So that got a lot of people's attention. And uh, so some, some leaders in the New Hampshire Alliance prayed, and they got together 20 leaders of Christian recovery ministries, like His Mansion, um, Teen Challenge, I don't know who was there, but 20 different ministries in the state. And they met with a group from the governor's office. And the, uh, somebody in that meeting from the governor's side afterwards said, well, you Christians don't work very well together, and you actually don't even get along that well. True, <laughs> but not something that you want to hear. So uh, the New Hampshire Alliance folks went back to prayer. They said, what can we do? So they formed the Good Samaritan Network. And it has three primary goals. It has the name states to, to network together the Christian recovery ministries that are already going on in the state of New Hampshire. And then um, to get churches involved in helping people that are recovering from whatever. Uh, and then to equip people in churches to do that. So that's the goal of the Good Samaritan Network. So in 2017, I heard about that because, uh, long story, but I, I have connection with the, the New Hampshire Alliance. And um, so I had gone to some of their meetings and so forth, but that was as far as it went. But in 2019, there was a tri-county drug summit over in Whitefield at the Mountain View Grand. Uh, so it was uh, Coas, Grafton, and Carroll counties. And there were nine stakeholder groups there. Um, there was law enforcement, there were uh, legislators, there was public health, there was the faith community, Pastor Mack was there, uh, Chuck Wild, some of you probably know he was there, um, and some others locally. And um, so we had a, a plenary session and then we broke up into the stakeholder groups and we were to address three questions. What is your group doing to address the opioid crisis? What is going well for you and what resources do you need to be more effective? So <laughs> I started thinking, what is our group, the faith community at large, you know, Christian churches, that's my, my context. Um, what are we doing to address the opioid crisis? Almost nothing. We, we, we do outsource. We send people to AA, Teen Challenge, His Mansion, uh, Celebrate Recovery Now. Uh, but as far as what do we do in-house, not much. And so I, I'm a hands-on, fix-it kind of guy. So my question was, okay, Lord, what do we need to do to get from where we are to where we really should be? 
and he started to show me. <laughs> I quickly became overwhelmed uh, because there were some pretty significant things that needed to change. And uh, so I came away from that meeting. As I was driving home, I, I was just uh, I was in turmoil with all the stuff going on inside of me. And I said, well, Lord, this is way above my pay grade. <laughs> I said, I don't even know where to start, but you do. And if you can use me in some way, here I am. Don't say that unless you mean it, by the way. <laughs> and I'm not discouraging you from saying it, uh, but it wasn't too long after that that some things happened. One was I got asked to be the Good Samaritan Network, North Country, uh, um, regional recovery team coordinator. So that, for short, that's the G-S-N-N-C-R-R-T-C. <laughs> One of the first things I did was have some cards printed up, so I didn't have to keep saying that. <laughs> um, and now, my background is not in recovery. I've never been addicted to drugs or alcohol. I will say that when I was younger, I misused both regularly, uh, but I was never addicted to them. I didn't even understand why. I couldn't figure that out for a long time until I began to learn about the physiology of addiction. And that's one of the things I need. I had a lot to learn. I had everything to learn. Um, and <laughs> so that was a very significant watershed event. And then there was another one, which it didn't seem so much on the surface. My friend Chuck Wilde, I was visiting him one day, and he said, you need to read this book. It's called Bridges to Grace. And I said, Chuck, I have a stack of books that I have to read. And he said, no, you really have to read this. And I said, okay, I, I'll, I'll go this far. I'll try. So I took it home, and I, I like to read. Time is an issue, so I usually read like six books at a time. You know, a few pages here, a few, it's just me. Um, that book I read right through, and I was fascinated. And, and what it is, it, it's an account, the, the, one of the women that wrote the book, she traveled around the US and Canada and visited 260 churches that were involved in recovery ministry. And she found out that that means all different kinds of things in different contexts. And so the book uh, is nine, it chronicles nine different churches and how they got involved, what, what recovery looks like in their church. And so when I got done reading it, I was like, that's it. That, that's what I want to do. Well, because we're not in India, <laughs> you have to skip a lot. <laughs> uh, because a lot of things have happened between now and then. Um, but one of the things that I have learned is that everybody has a story. I got a story, you got a story. God has a story. And in fact, his story is called his story. It's, it's what God is doing in human history. And so we're gonna look at that a bit. But you know, part of my story is very obvious because uh, it's written right on my face. And you know that there's some story <clears throat> I was in a <clears throat> excuse me. I was in a local church a few years ago, and a woman came up to talk, and she had a little boy with her, and he looked up at me and he says, "What's the matter with your face?" 
The poor mother's like, oh, I can't believe he said that. Hey, I wasn't offended by it. It was a, it was a great question. Um, and so now I could make up a great story here about rescuing a child from a grizzly bear, but it wasn't that. <laughs> it's a little less dramatic. Uh, I had a very aggressive skin cancer that went down into the bone. And so in 2010, I went down to Dartmouth and they cut away the skin, they cut away the bone, they put a titanium plate in place of the bone, and they took a piece of my leg and that's what's up here. So that's that story. But that's only a part of my story. There are other aspects of my story that are down inside that you have no idea. And I have no idea what yours is. Um, but we've all got a story. And I, I want to tell you a true story. Uh, you'll understand why I say this. This took place pre-COVID. Um, it has a very unpleasant aspect to it, but, but hang with me on it. Uh, this guy was on his back, <clears throat> surrounded by a group of masked men. That's why the COVID thing is significant. <laughs> and while he was alive, one of those men took a knife, plunged it into his chest, and cut his heart out. And what might surprise you is that he was incredibly grateful to that team of surgeons because that heart transplant <laughs> saved his life. Now, knowing the rest of the story really makes a difference. Because without that, without understanding the whole story, you jump to conclusions, you make assumptions. And, and assumptions and conclusions are usually not correct. Um, and we want to learn to listen to one another's stories. You know, I said we we're going to discuss some words. Words are funny things. Uh, you know, I'm a pastor and a Bible teacher, so often words are my stock and trade. But they're, I, I found that they're very insufficient uh, means for communication. But I haven't found a good alternative, so we use them. But the, 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 the shortcoming is that words communicate different things to different people. So recovery, what does that mean? A few years ago, I was having breakfast with a pastor friend, and I, I told him that I was getting drawn in this direction of recovery. And he said, I don't like that word. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he said, I, I don't like that word, recovery. And I thought, it's a perfectly fine word. I said, do tell. And he said, well, to me, that means that, you know, somebody's addicted to drugs or alcohol, and they get off of that, nothing else changes in their life, and they die and they go to hell for eternity. So what good is that? And I thought, well, yeah, if that's the definition of recovery, I don't like it either. So what is recovery? You know, what, what do we mean by that? Um, the dictionary definition is, is pretty good. It says the regaining of, or possibility of regaining, something lost or taken away. Restoration or return to health from sickness. Everybody's been sick and recovered, right? Um, restoration or return to any former and better state or condition. And that one really ties in with what recovery is in the Christian context. You know, in, the, in the secular context of recovery, like Alcoholics Anonymous, they mention God, 
Um, they rarely mention Jesus. And then there are other um, programs that people get involved in to get off of drugs or alcohol. And, and, and they, they, they work in that they get people off of drugs or alcohol. And I, that's a good thing. It's not that those things are bad. They're just incomplete. And so one of the things in the Good Samaritan Network is that we want to uh, network all available resources. So we don't, we don't shun secular resources. And it, it, God has opened up uh, some doors um, to be involved in a, a, um, a new effort in the North Country put on by the North Country Health Consortium. It's called the North Country Recovers Together. And it's to gather all available resources. And the faith community is welcome at that table. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool. Um, but those secular resources only address the body and the soul. They do not address, they don't, don't address the spiritual dimension of a human being. And that's where we come in. Because if somebody recovers physically, that's great. But if that's all that recovers eternally, it's not great. And we have a much, much greater recovery to bring to people. So the, the working definition that I use for recovery is God restoring his image in the life of a person. And it begins with being born again. Because if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. That's a totally fresh start. And, and you know, the thing that I think is the greatest about being a Christian, the moment you give your life to Christ, all of your problems are gone. <laughs> yeah. No, really. I mean, if you had any debts, they're wiped away. If you had any relational issues, those are all taken care of. <laughs> We're all laughing because we know that's not so. But try this. Go into any church on a Sunday morning and just listen. And people say, how are you? Fine. You? Oh, I'm fine. Now, if you're new to that environment, you're like, wow. Everybody here is fine all the time. And, 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 there, and there will be one of two responses. Either they're not telling the truth or everybody else is fine and I'm not. So I should leave. So we know that all of our problems don't get solved instantly when we come to Christ. So why do we say so? Why do we say that we're fine all the time? I mean, you know, on one level, it, it, when somebody says, how are you doing? They're not looking for your whole history right there, okay? But are there safe places in our church community, where we can actually be real with one another, where we can say, you know what, I'm not fine. I'm struggling with this. And then we can help each other. And, and, and we can all access God's grace together. Because without that, we're done. So we want to just look at some of the history. And we're going to start in Genesis 1. I know... Uh, Luke 7 is up, and we'll, we will get there. Uh, but just back at the creation, uh, you know, Genesis 1 talks about the six days of creation. 
And down in, right at the end, uh, it says that God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Why was it very good? It was good because everything was exactly in the order that God wanted it to be. Now skip ahead to chapter 3. And if you've read that, you know what happens. It becomes not very good. And so we're, we're, that's okay. (laughs) Gotta love technology. I made sure to turn off my cell phone before I got up here because that's embarrassing. Um, I'm going to skip through a little bit of this in the, in the interest of time. But, it, it, you know, Satan comes into the garden, the, this perfect environment. Um, and he finds Adam and Eve there. And Adam and Eve, they, they had complete acceptance by God. God would come and fellowship with them in the garden. It, it, that was all they ever knew. So that was normal for them. And, and they were totally secure. They had everything they could possibly need. God was taking care of all of their needs. They had nothing to worry about. Those concerns would never even have entered their minds. And they were significant. They were the work of his hands. I mean, literally handcrafted by God. Um, And God delighted in them. And they delighted in him. Well, that displeased Satan. So he came in to mess things up. And unfortunately, he was very successful. And, you know, on the surface, God said there's one tree in the middle of the garden. You can eat all from all the other trees, but that one tree, don't eat from that. And he knew that it would harm them, but they did eat from that. And it not only harmed them, it literally knocked all of creation out of whack to this day. And you think, come on, it was just one bite. How could that be so awful? And I had somebody ask me that. I was witnessing to them, and they said, I wouldn't do that with my kids. Well, yeah. (laughs) But as I thought more about it, they were saying, God, you do not deserve to be God. We will be God. That's why it was so awful. And immediately, everything was changed. There was a fourfold harmony there. There was harmony between Adam and Eve, between them and God, between them and nature, and even inwardly. They had no internal conflicts or anything until that moment. And then three things came into the garden. There was guilt because they had disobeyed God, and they knew it. Now, their consciences were perfectly tender. And so the moment they sinned, they were overwhelmed with guilt. And they felt shame at that guilt, as you would imagine. And so how did they respond? They got afraid. And they ran away, and they tried to hide from God. Foolish, but it, it, was, it was a desperate response. And you know what? We've had the same response to sin ever since. We try to cope with it somehow. Now, sometimes we just stuff it. We pretend that it's not there, but it is there. And we know, but we can't let anybody know because we're embarrassed about it. Okay, has anybody here not done something that they were embarrassed about? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and we fear rejection, so we don't want to 
say that we ever did anything embarrassing, even though we know that we all did. Um, so they tried to cope by trying to hide. Some people try to cope by uh, misusing drugs or alcohol, get into wrong relationships, uh, become a workaholic, you name it. Uh, the, the, the variations are endless. Um, and sin causes burdens and pain, and that can be our own sins or other people's sins that have affected us. But right away in the garden, God promised that he would send someone who would crush the serpent's head eventually. And we know that that was Jesus. So we're going to skip ahead um, to Luke chapter 4. And, you know, I think it's very interesting that that, uh, God said that one would come to crush Satan's head. And that took place on the cross, which happened on a mountain called Golgotha. And that means the place of the skull. And that's where Satan's head was crushed. I don't think that's coincidental. Uh, So uh, we we have a number of years of Jesus' life. The the first 30 years, we don't know much about him. But then he, he, he goes public. He's baptized by John. He gets tempted by Satan in the desert. He passes through the temptation successfully. And then he begins his public ministry in his home area of Galilee, which, by the way, was in the north country in Israel. Um, And he's very well received teaching in the synagogues until he gets to his hometown of Nazareth. And then he stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, he he reads what Isaiah wrote there. And this is in Luke 4. tell you in a second. Uh, Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And everybody looks at him. And he said something that nobody else had ever said before when they read that scripture. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) So he's saying, I am that one. That's what I came to do. That's what what I was sent by God to do and anointed by the Holy Spirit to do. And... You just look at the people that he was sent to, the poor. That means destitute of all resources. They had nothing, some of them. Some, they weren't all necessarily materially poor. Someone once said, you know, some folks are so poor, all they have is money. Because there's another kind of poverty, a spiritual poverty, and there's a lot of those folks too. Uh, he came for the brokenhearted, which means to be broken in pieces, He came for the captives, people that were in any kind of bondage, to set them free. The blind. Now, is that spiritual blindness or physical blindness, do you think? I think yes. Whatever kind of blindness you're dealing with, Jesus wants to set you free. 
And then the oppressed. That's a very strong word. It means totally shattered, like ground to pieces. And then he said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That is most likely the year of Jubilee. Every 49 years under the law of Moses, it was a, a, an amazing time. All debts would be forgiven. Slaves would be set free. If somebody had lost their land, somehow they would be restored to them. Israel never did that. There's no record that they ever did that, even though that was God's design. And it was a foreshadowing of what was to come in Christ, when everything would be made right again. That's recovery. Um, and Jesus also said, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. To whom? The poor, the brokenhearted, the blind, the oppressed. You know what? That's those people. We don't want those people coming in here. Well, then what are we doing? <laughs> you know, those are the people that need to be here. Um, and imagine somebody going to the doctor. You know, they got this incredible pain. The doctor says, so how are you? Oh, I, I'm fine. <laughs> well, then why did you come? I, I just wanted to drop in for a visit. We wouldn't do that. <laughs> but we do, in a way. Um, so... That was the big takeaway for me, the, the first thing, the first obstacle to being who the church is supposed to be is that idea of those people, the stigma that, oh, they messed up. Yeah, because they're human. So Luke chapter 7, we go to the dinner party. And you know what? We're all at this dinner party in some way. I start at verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him, that would be Jesus, to eat with him. So he invited him over for dinner, perfectly normal. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Now that sat down to eat, we, we know what that means. That's not what it means here. They didn't have chairs. They, they would recline. They would have like a, like a bench sort of that they would lay down on. And, and that makes what's about to happen uh, makes more sense because he wasn't sitting in a chair with his feet under the table. Um, so behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. How would you like to be introduced like that? When she knew that Jesus sat at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, was he right? Was she a sinner? Yeah. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. 
There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with her fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, I'm guessing that Simon hadn't expected something quite like that to take place. And we just want to look at the people that were there for a moment. <clears throat> okay, you've got Jesus. He was the, the main guest that was invited. You've got Simon, the, the homeowner that invited him. <clears throat> uh, it says that there were others that sat at the table. So those were other guests. Maybe some of the disciples, they're not specifically mentioned, but they, they, we have this account, so somebody recorded it. And then, of course, there was, well, you know, that woman. She was not invited. She crashed the party. Uh, that was rude in, in any, any culture. Um, but this was a Pharisee's house and she was a sinner and you just didn't do that. So we don't know this woman's story. We don't know her background. It's not given there. Apparently her sins were very public because everybody knew she was a sinner. It has been speculated that possibly she was a prostitute. But we don't know. If that's the case, then her wiping Jesus' feet and kissing them, you know, that would have been a very sensual act. And how did Jesus respond? He didn't recoil at that because he saw her heart. He knew why she was doing that. There was nothing sensual in it. It was an act of love and devotion and worship. But the Pharisee, he said, this man, if he were a prophet, <laughs> no, he's not a prophet. He's God sitting at your table. <laughs> now you've got to give the guy a break because who would think such a thing? Jesus appeared as, as a, a regular man. He was a blue-collar carpenter guy from the North Country. I mean, you know, we know those folks, right? <laughs> but then he starts doing these very irregular things like healing people and raising them from the dead and taking the Pharisees on and... Uh, and so, you know, you can forgive 
Simon for not understanding who was at his table. But he said, if he were a prophet, he would never let her touch him. Simon wouldn't do that. You know, if she'd have tried to touch Simon, she would have either been thrown out or Simon would have run out. And, and it's reminiscent of the story of the Good Samaritan, which the Good Samaritan Network is named after. This guy basically gets mugged and, and beaten almost to death. And a, a, a Jewish priest comes along. And if you've read the story, you know that he has such compassion on the guy that, no, he crossed the street so that he wouldn't have to get close to this guy because he was a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans and the Jews had a thing going on. Uh, we have something that's slightly similar here, and it's Flatlanders. <laughs> and I speak as one. Okay. I was born in Massachusetts. It was my parents' fault. <laughs> but, you know, the, the reason that people in the North Country have an issue with Flatlanders is because sometimes Flatlanders come up here and look down on people in the North Country. So we in the North Country look down on the people that come up here and look down on us. So who's right? Neither one. Same kind of thing, but a little more intense with the, the, uh, the Jews and the, Pharisees, uh, the uh, Samaritans. Uh, and in that story, the Good Samaritan, then a Levite comes along. They, they're also of the priestly caste. He also crosses the street. Won't help this guy. Then a Samaritan comes along. He, he helps him. He, he, he cleans him up. He brings him to an inn. He's traveling somewhere, so he leaves money for the guy's care. And he says, if, if the bill runs over, I'll catch up with you on the way back. And, and the Good Samaritan Network is to help anybody in need with whatever resources it takes. And that should be the mission of the church, shouldn't it? But somehow or another, we've kind of gotten off mission. And, and we, that can be recovered uh, and, and needs to be. Um, so Jesus understood what was going on in Simon's heart. You know, the Holy Spirit can reveal things like that and did to Jesus. Um, <clears throat> and he, he asked Simon a strange question. Do you see this woman? Do you see this 900-pound elephant in the room? And the answer was no. He didn't see a woman. He saw a reputation. He saw a lifetime of bad choices. We don't know how this woman was stepped on by life. We don't know her story. And Simon wasn't interested in hearing it even. And he couldn't see her. And sometimes that happens with us as well. Um, you know, in Romans 5, it says that where, where there's much sin, there's much grace to cover that sin. So if somebody's life has a history of much sin and they come in to our church, they need much grace. But the sad fact is sometimes they find less grace. They find criticism, condemnation, judgment. People back away from them. Maybe not physically, but they can sense it. And it is said, observe that Jesus walked 
toward people. He went after those people. And now we're called to do the same. So, you know, I, I would just like to encourage you to do what I did. Say, Lord, I have the faintest clue what to do here. But I know that you want to accomplish something, and if you can use me in it in some way, here I am. I can't tell you how that's going to play out. I can tell you it'll be really, really good. It, it'll be hard. It'll be messy sometimes. Uh, but life is like that, you know? But either, it, it, if we're going to follow Jesus, we will either do the ministry of Jesus or, or what? I, I mean, to follow him, we must do that. So, um, I could have said more, but <laughs> um, it, on the table just outside the door here, I, I put several copies of Bridges to Grace in case you want to read it. I, I highly recommend it. If I get those back, great. If not, no problem. You know, if somebody else wants to read it and passes along, that's great. Um, and I have some cards there uh, in case you wanted to contact me for any reason. And I also have some bookmarks um, from Freedom in Christ Ministries, and it's who I am in Christ. Some really, really important truths. So if you want to take one of those, feel free. So Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, without it, we wouldn't even be here. We would have no hope. And you have asked us to be your vessels of grace to the world, to a very hurting world. So we just offer ourselves up to you today. Pray that you would do with us as you will. And that you would be glorified through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.